This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure, 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. It's deja vu time, as this week the Clarets look to pile more pressure on a very, very, very under-pressure Everton manager. This is the Known and Ever podcast. This is Liam Allen for the No Man Ever podcast. Happily stood in the fan zone, post match, Burnley Everton, 1 0 win. Overall, fairly convincing. Troubled us a bit in the first half, we seemed to be a bit overrun. But I think, generally speaking, we had the run of them, and especially after the sending off, we, we sorted them all out. I'm now joined by my old school friend, Neil Lavery. Neil. Welcome to the No Name Ever podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah. What's your opinion, first of all, of the lay, the uh, setup of the match before we started and how it all transpired? Um, I wasn't surprised that uh, we just brought um, Hendrick into the middle and put somebody out wide. Some people were saying we may stick with a 4-3-3. I didn't think we would. First half, didn't look like it was going to get us anything, but uh, we had to step it up after the got a man sent off and we did so can't complain absolutely yep yep it all turned out alright in the end right absolutely yeah and um, none of that no, you're not, sorry none of that nervousness you normally get from Burnley in the last 10 minutes or anything just saw it out very nicely could have had a couple of chances uh, Rodriguez maybe could have squared it but in that position he's always going to shoot yeah um, yeah, couple maybe it's same for Goodmanson as well when they were clean through. Really, it was one of his prime scoring opportunities, yeah, wasn't it? Um, yeah, yeah like I say can't really argue though. One nil, one one nil, one goal was always going to be enough yeah. to win it. I don't think any team was ever going to run away with it, and we got it. So happy days. Yeah. Cheers, Neil. No problem. Enjoy thank your you. evening. I will. Thank you. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by Jason Valley, an old Todmorden friend of mine, Jason. It's the first time you've seen the Clarets in the flesh this season. What do you think of the starting lineup, and how do you think the game transpired? Oh, uh, not a bad starting lineup. Uh, what I think was towards the end, the formation were a lot better, and which proved in the result really. And they could have had a lot more. They started a little bit earlier like that, I think. Yeah. Did you think Everton looked like threatening us at any point of time? No, I think they're horrific. To be honest, I think the finishing is terrible. And the final ball is terrible as well. Personally, I thought that this was the right time to play Everton, that we could have taken them by the scruff of the neck. I think we could have taken a little bit more scruff. What did you think? I think there's a chance that they could go down if they carry on playing like this, because they don't look very good at all. Yeah. Their fans weren't right pleased at the end of the game. How do you think it's looking for Marco? Not very good. I think he might get sacked tomorrow. Thanks for joining us, Jason. Pleasure. My good friend John Smith, who always gives me a very honest opinion of the match. So, John, came into this match thinking we should take Everton by the scruff of the neck. They're not in great form. What is your opinion of the start and what is your opinion of the match? 
Well, I thought they didn't really have anything up front to trouble us, but but I didn't think we were playing decent if balls into our front too, so it was a bit of a stalemate. I thought the send-off was was changed the game, wasn't it? And that, that man might cost his manager his job, but uh, it was a bad tackle. We suddenly got a bit more space and we got in behind them, didn't we? And I, it's a great win, you know. I don't think they're as bad as everyone said. But they're not winning, are they? And they'll continue that way. They will not want to play Burnley. And I see that we've gone up to fourth. (laughs) He's laughing, by the way, everybody. Um, They did look like they were controlling the game in parts in the first half, which worried me a little bit, given the performances that we've seen um, so far from Everton and the performance that we've seen so far from Burnley. But... You probably agree with me that it didn't really trouble us that much. The finishing product was You know, to, possession doesn't win games, does it? And, and I think you can have plenty of the ball, you can play it backwards, sideways, but, you know, you've got to get it in the, 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 the opponent's third, haven't you? And I don't think they were doing any of that. Yeah. I like the lad they bought from City, Delph. Delph yeah. And he's a footballer, and he kept the ball, and he... I mean, he looks pretty. But I don't know that's the way to win games. I think when you're in trouble, you've got to take a bit more risk, and they didn't. He was quieting down a little bit after the first 15 or 20 minutes, though, and he he seemed to sparkle a bit early in the match, but you didn't see much of him afterwards. Well, you know, we we missed Cork today, and um, you looked at first. I thought in the first half there was both Hendrick and Goodmanson didn't really get on and come in and get the ball. But, you know, it it's would an interesting observation because I thought that it was a breath of fresh air, despite the fact that I do rate Cork, breath of fresh air that, that we had a different setup without Cork. Well, I think Cork drowns sometimes. We haven't got enough support round him. Yeah, yeah. I think Westwood's the heartbeat, but you need to, you know, be a bit more patient with the football, didn't, don't we? And, and I thought if we don't have all Tenville players playing together, it won't work for us. So, but look at it. I could have said, let's change Hendrick. What a superb goal. And so, you know, they've contributed in different ways, don't they? Exactly. Different ways. Yeah, I agree. Um, and maybe to round that all off, I thought the substitutions were good. They would seem to work very well. J-Rod put a great performance in. Hey, look, I, I was worried the other week someone was suggesting that J-Rod, with, without much pace, he wouldn't get in the first team. And, and, and I thought we bought him for his intelligent play. And I can we saw that, that today. Yeah, we did. And, you know, when you get it down and give it to him, he suddenly moves it a bit differently. Yeah. I, but, you know, I'm not knocking... Us. I think we've got different ways of playing, haven't we? And I hope Jack gets fit and gets back in the side. He is one of my favourite players. We need everybody in the squad, right? Oh, of course, you need all of them chipping in, don't you? Yeah. And that's the way we'll. Hey, that's the way we'll do well. Cheers, John. Appreciate your time. Hello and welcome back to the None and Ever podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Bromley, and joining me this week are two very special guests. Number one, we're joined again by new regular panellist, George Poole, who is now celebrating his new life at university. George, tell our listeners how you're settling in. Well, I saw you as you were looking forward to Freshers' Week, I believe. Yeah, I'm absolutely loving it. Thank you very much, Natalie. Uh, I'm into my third week now, so I had Freshers' Week and then sort of just getting into lectures and the swing of things now. Spent way too much money, and that's the story of uni so far, but I'm absolutely loving it, thanks. Good, good, and still obviously managing to keep up with the clarets, so somebody's got his university life priorities right, I like it. Um, and joining us this week is a voice that you will be familiar with, but one that you've not heard for a while. We're going old school, and I am delighted to say that we are joined this week by one of the founder members of Team Known and Ever, and my previous co-host, James Bird. Bird is the word. Welcome back. We missed you. Thanks, Natalie. I was getting a bit concerned that someone might break my parents' record, so I had to come <laughs> on and top myself up. Yeah. <laughs> I think we've still got a long way to go before anybody breaks that appearance record. It's been a long time. So how's your break from the podcast been, James? How, how was last season? How did you do? Yeah, I guess it's a bit different, not talking about the uh, talking about the results every week um, on the podcast, but um, it's nice to get a break from having to think about it so critically all the time. So it, it's nice just to be watching more as a fan rather than trying to think about what I'm going to say on the podcast that week. 
Yeah, I definitely have those feelings a lot, especially if it's a really bad result and we've won. I'm like, oh, God, how am I going to find the enthusiasm? To, well, number one, how am I going to have to watch that again and then find all the talking points? It is it is difficult, I know, James. Yeah, it's, it's much easier to put bad results behind yeah. you when you don't have to talk about them again. Yeah, definitely. I know when you and I did the podcast for those couple of seasons, just the two of us, I think we were both like, oh, God, how are we going to drag ourselves through this again? But but we are here. You know, we, we, we take one for the team and we do it. Um, um, but before we go on to the, the match, actually, I, I think given that we've gone old school with young Mr. Bird coming back to us, um, it would feel like a wasted opportunity if we didn't delve back into one of non Ever's most popular and much-loved features. That is, of course, Kitely Corner. James, who did you sit with at the weekend? Yeah, so I was, I was plenty of fans probably to see Michael Kitely was on uh, Claret's player with uh, the old man, Phil Bird. Um, so I got to have a little chat with him after the game. Uh, so a few fans stopped him as well. And it was nice to see um, a player getting a good reception from fans because I don't think it's very often you come across a situation where you see a former player seeing fans in an environment that's not playing against us for another team. Um, so to see him obviously move through the stand and, and people you know, thanking him for what he did for us, uh, it was quite nice to see really because... I think most of the players who come back to players get booed, don't they? So um, it does make a nice change. Uh, and a few were surprised to see that he was retired because um, he still looked like he could play, to be honest. He you know, he, he didn't look like he put any weight on since he stopped playing. He, he still looks in great shape. So um, it was nice to see him. Yeah, I'm really pleased to hear that as well, especially as Kitely had... I'm not going to say a troubled time, but he never really managed to break into the first team and, and keep hold of his spot, didn't he? And he had a... He always had a good relationship with fans, but he always had that relationship of, well, we're not really sure where he fits in the team and Deitch never really seemed to take to him. So it was it, well, it was nice to, number one, hear that fans were giving him a pat on the back and nice to see that he wanted to come back and, and be on, on Claret's player. Um, did it- yeah, I think he's one who, sorry, I think yeah. he's one who's quite quiet as well. Mm-hmm. So that's why maybe a lot of fans didn't, didn't have a, you know, an opinion one way or the other with him. He, he tends to keep himself to himself, I think. But um, I know he spoke very highly of Daesh uh, throughout his, his time on uh, Claret's player. And I know as well he was on, I think, Talk Sport on the Friday night uh, and said a lot of good things about Daesh as well. So it was clear that, you know, even though he didn't necessarily get in the team as much as he probably would have liked, he, he didn't come away sort of holding that against Daesh, which I think is a you know, big positive review for Daesh as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, just before we move on, then I guess did he have anything else to say? What was the what was the rationale behind his retirement? I think you know he was just worried about his body holding up to it anymore. Uh, obviously, I think everyone knows that he's he had quite a few knee injuries over his career. So um, you know, I think that was just kind of uh, dogging him a bit, and you know, decided uh, it was time to call it a day. Which I guess if you can go when when you think's the right time, that's probably the best way to do it, isn't it? Yeah, I'm just looking on his profile now. He's 33 and he's only just gone 33 as well this year. So, well, obviously this year, but you know what I mean? Like the only part of this year. Um, So I'm quite, yeah, well, do players play? Outfield players tend to not go that much further than 33, do they? So, yeah, it's one of, I think probably because he's, he's always like the little baby face and he always strikes me as being quite young that I, when James first told me that he'd retired, I did express some surprise. But actually, yeah, the timeline probably fits in. Well, that's that's lovely to hear, and like I say, I wasn't necessarily expecting to resurrect Cartley Corner anytime soon, if ever. So we're, we're definitely uh, we're definitely going one for the nostalgia books this week, um, George. While we're on about former players, and, and I guess as an introduction into looking at this game at the weekend, um, obviously it was nice to see Michael Keane back at Turf Moor again. Um, I thought he played quite well on Saturday as, as a general point. I think he, he, he definitely handled Ashley Barnes probably better than he has done in, in most of the recent games against him. Yeah, obviously I was watching on the stream, so I, I didn't get the sort of the atmosphere in the ground. But I remember actually on this like dodgy stream, even the, the American commentators were actually making a mention of how uh, good a reception he got by the Burnley crowd. So that was quite nice to hear. And I, I think he gets a bit of... Uh, when he first left Burnley, we were all praising him. He's brilliant, he's this, he's that. And I think over the past year, there's sort of been a consensus to sort of move against him just because he's a rival for talks in the England squad. So you get quite a bit now of people saying, oh, he's not playing well, he's not playing well. But I actually think he's doing really well at Everton, uh, definitely in the last year. And on Saturday, he played really well again. It was one. It was a really tight game, a, a game dominated by both defences. And I thought both Keane and Yerry Mina were both superb. 
And obviously they conceded, they've lost the game, but it wasn't really their fault. It was more just a team collective issue at the corner. So I thought Keane was really impressive at the weekend and he definitely deserves to be in the England squad, but so does Tarks. <laughs> definitely. We're definitely carrying on our campaign here, aren't we, to get Tarky and Ben Mee into, into the England squad. Um, OK, well, let's look into the the game at the weekend. Uh, 1-0 Burnley win. Um James, it felt before the game, I think we talked about this actually in the podcast last week, that it felt very similar to the situation a couple of years ago when Everton under Koeman hadn't started particularly very well and they fell um, at Turf Moor again. And that was, I think, his penultimate game before he ended up getting sacked and losing away at Burnley put an immense amount of pressure on him. And this Everton side came to Turf Moor feeling about the same psychologically unprepared for a game and a manager under a lot of pressure. Um, I I kind of felt that in the first half, it was a half that wasn't particularly eventful, but I I definitely felt that pressure on the pitch from the Everton players. I don't know if you picked up on that. I I think there was definitely a way about, you know, how they were playing. Um, You know, they're having a really bad run and I think they're a weird side because they're easy to forget about because they're never really in the conversation for a challenge at the top, but they're also never in the conversation for allegation. So you sort of come into every season expecting Everton to kind of just, you know, fill seventh spot pretty much consistently. Um, and there's, there's a lot of players in that team that have cost a lot of money and they're just not delivering. Um, and I think you could feel from the way they were playing, they were a little bit cagey. Um, that they desperately need a result. Um, and, you know, there were some interesting aspects of the game as well. Obviously, you've touched on centre-backs and there was some off-the-ball sort of stuff that seemed to go on all game with Barnes. And I don't know whether, you know, that was a reaction to the, the form they find themselves in where, you know, obviously they know what a, a dangerous player Barnes can be, what an irritant he can be. And instead of letting him get under their skin, they've tried to get under his skin straight away to try and give themselves, a, you know, a psychological advantage. Um, because Barnes got nothing all day from the referee and, you know, Keane was regularly coming over the back of him. Uh, there was a few tangles with Mina as well. And you could just see that Everton were playing with that kind of, edginess about them that that meant if Barnes had maybe been able to get the better of those battles, it could have really impacted them. Yeah, that's a really interesting point actually. And I think I'd not I'd not drilled down that far into it as as much as you did there to kind of get under the skin of exactly what was going on in that first half. But you're absolutely right. And to me I think that just highlights the pressure, not necessarily the pressure that Silver's under, but the argument that he's perhaps not the man to take them forward because it's just, it's trying to do something, but again, just making poor decisions. And that commitment and that energy, if they'd have just applied that to their passing of the ball and their creativity and their discipline on the pitch, they wouldn't have had a situation where they ended up getting a player sent off or, you know, they did lose their heads a little bit and they just lost their way throughout the game. They could have just applied that to to a much more solid performance and, and got something, got a result out of it. Because I think until, the, the, certainly until the sending off, which we'll come on to in a minute, I thought the game was pretty even. Um, George, despite that, and despite a little bit of, of possession from um, Everton and, and like you say that attempt that ju- that James was just mentioning then of that trying to get under the skin of our players I never really felt in that first half that they were going to score I didn't feel like we were threatened in any way No I thought it was a really good uh, defensive performance from us but defending as a team as we always do during the first half obviously they had quite a bit of possession but that's the way we like it most of the, most of the time I know on the, the commentator was saying that only, I think it might be Newcastle, have had less average possession per game than Burnley. And it's not to say that we're playing badly. It's just that we let them have the ball. And surprisingly enough, even though we don't have any quick players, we play on the break quite a lot. And I thought we did that really well in the first half, where we just sat back, let them come at us. But we defended really well and they couldn't they couldn't break us down. I know Port, he, did, he had maybe one save all game in the second half. But apart from that, he had nothing to do just because of how well we defended as a team. And then when we went forward, we looked okay. But again, Everton were defending well at the same time. So it was a very even first half for me. 
Yeah, same. I think, James, you had, um, I, I guess, a bit of criticism about just their lack of creativity up front, haven't they? I mean, they've never really recovered from losing Lukaku, and it kind of shows, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, they have very little up front, and I think this is something that a lot of the pundits have been talking about as well, that, you know, how can they expect to, you know, get pick up results when you, you look at their side at times and you, you're wondering where the, the goals are coming from, they, they lack in a true out-and-out striker. You know, they've got people who play in the midfield who can score goals. Obviously, Sigurdsson, you, you know, you, you can get goals. Ricarlison can get goals. But they really lack in that sort of striker that when the game's not necessarily going your way, can just take a chance and, and score, which is what Lukaku would do because obviously he's a very much a flat-track bully and you could punt the ball up as a clearance, and if he beats the defender to it, he's got a chance to score. Uh, and now you look at their side, and you just you don't see anywhere they're going to take a half chance and and turn it into a you know a result they've stolen. And I think one of the big things in the Premier League is you need that capability to steal results. Um, you know, I don't think we stole that stole the result on Saturday, but you'll see. Other than uh, the Hendrick goal, we didn't really have as many chances maybe we would have liked. Um, as George has said, their defence were excellent um, and that really limited our opportunities. So it wasn't until, uh, you know, Hendrick managed to get loose at the, the back post on a corner and the goals maybe popped up from a, a less expected position that we've managed to get the result. Uh, and I think that's what teams need. And when you look at Everton's squad, you just don't see that depth of people who can get goals where you, you necessarily won't expect them to get them. Yeah, especially from a side that have got aspirations to try and break into that top six. It seems absurd to me that they're trying to do that without, as James said, an out-and-out striker and somebody who's got that ruthless streak up front because a striker and a good striker can be the difference in this league between being in the mix with everybody else and being in that top six or seven sides. And the amount of money that Everton have spent, I mean, I I personally don't think they've spent particularly very wisely either. I think they've gone a bit mishmash and they've just bought players rather than seeing how they gel. Um, George, I think, did you want to... I have a quick word on this point before we moved on, I think, didn't you? Yeah, I think they actually really missed uh, Sigurdsson when he came off in the second half. They were basically forced to take him off after Coleman was sent off. And I think he's very much their main creative output up top. A war beer for me, bang average, never never cutting the mustard at Arsenal as an out first-team winger. Uh, They paid a lot of money for him, and I don't think he's really stepped up so far. I know it's early in the season, uh, I thought Moyes Keane looked good when he came on, but him and Calvert-Lewin are both really young. You need an experienced head in there who they can both learn off. So without that really 20-goal-a-season striker, they're relying a lot on Sigurdsson's creativity. I know whenever we play him, I'm always just worried they're going to get a free kick or he's going to get in a position just outside the box to feed someone in. And uh, on Saturday, when they, when they took him off after Coleman was sent off, I was so relieved and it, it, I actually just watched the rest of the game pretty peacefully. I didn't expect them to score at all. And score they did not. <laughs> OK, well, before we moved, I guess, on to the second half, the only other talking point from that first half of the game is one half of the incident that led to um, the sending off. So um, the first booking then, James, um, the tackle on Peters. Deitch, after the game, insisted that it actually was a straight red and wasn't a yellow card. Um, he said it wasn't for the referee to judge whether it was, oh, how did he word it, whether it was an accident or not, whether it was intentional or not, it's whether it was dangerous. And he felt that he could have actually had, a, Coleman could have had a, um, a red card in that first half. What was your view of that tackle? Was it a straight red or was it just a yellow? It's a really difficult one because, you know, first look, um, in real time, it it didn't look as bad as the replays then show it to be. The replays obviously show just how uh, how physical the contact was, and you know it almost felt like my ankle broke watching it. it it's a miracle that um, you know Peters was able to walk away from that and and, and play on for a little while. Um, I'm I'm really not sure how he managed to come back out for the second half, to be honest. Uh, but it's one of those ones I think that's difficult. You you can you can see people getting red cards for that but also you can see people getting yellows I don't think it's it's obviously not malicious it, it's not intentional but it is dangerous um, it's one of those ones as well where you think well if we brought VAR in now um, 
and you know you've got access to those replays. Why is that one not being looked at again? It's easy to say, and I think this has been the case with VAR so far that it won't really go against what a referee's already decided. Um, and with this one, it's the case that when you see it from different angles and you get to see it from other positions, you see how dangerous it is. Whereas where the referee was, maybe it looks more innocuous. And I don't know, it's difficult. You'd, you'd feel quite hard done by if you were the player who got sent off for that. But at the same time, um, you know, there's got to be a deterrence to to recklessly challenging people. And while, you know, there's no intention intent there, there is, when people go in like that, always a risk that you could cause an injury. And, and it's, it's a very forceful challenge and he goes in hard. And I think as a result, you've seen people say for the second one that, oh, that is hard done by. Um, but again, the second one's the same. While he's not necessarily uh, committed a, a major offence, it's dangerous and it's a definite yellow card. Um, obviously, if he hadn't been booked for the first one, no one would be talking about it because he, he wouldn't have been sent off. Um, but with the first one, it could have been a red. So I don't know. It's very difficult. I, I can see it from both ways, but you know, personally, when you see it again, it does look like a red card. Yeah, I think the more I look at it, the more I, I think it's a red card. Um, I'm still, every week, tying myself in absolute knots about VAR and trying to get my head around and keep myself disciplined with what the rules are. And I'm not entirely sure why, well, maybe VAR, VAR did look at it, but would they have looked at it once the referee gave a yellow card? Does that then stop them looking at it? Because they don't look at yellow cards, do they? I wonder whether that's... Oh, I don't... God, and actually, do you know what? With this ridiculous high bar that they've set for clear and obvious errors, I'm not entirely sure that they would have, have given the red card anyway, but it was definitely an interesting one. Um, George, one of the points James then said was, he obviously, he, he was not expecting Peters to come back for the second half at all. Um, but he did, and only lasted 10 minutes, which made way for the return of young Charlie Taylor. Um for me, slotted in like he'd never been away. Um, how do you think Taylor performed? And do you think he will, injury aside, keep hold of that spot now? Yeah, the Peters one was the uh, Peters injury was a funny one because as soon as they showed the replay of it uh, in slow motion, I texted all my mates. I said, that's it. Peters broken ankle. Definitely. Yeah, unfortunately, he's going off. And then five minutes later, my mate Tom texts back saying, oh, yeah, it looks like he's playing with a broken ankle. And I just couldn't believe he'd carried on. So when he came out for the second half, I was so surprised. And um, I know the commentators were saying that he was definitely limping when he came back on. So I wasn't surprised then to see him go off. But as you say, I think Taylor slotted in seamlessly. He was brilliant when he came on. And you don't realise when he's out of the team, but when you're watching him and McNeil on the wings again, you just it's such a delight to watch him and McNeil bombing down that left wing, getting past players. Even though they're not... Really, the fastest of players, I wouldn't say. They just fa- they got a knack of getting past the uh, fullbacks, and to watch them both do it on the left hand side, it gives us a lot of creativity. And I think the way it's quite funny with the way Dice works, you don't get back into the team until there's an injury. But then, once you're back in the team, you tend to stay there. Like that's how Peters has stayed in the team after the first game where he performed well. And I think that will be the case of Taylor again. Uh, obviously, it was a first team role of last season. And I think it's it's been coming definitely all season for Taylor to come back in. But credit where it's due, Peters has got the most assists in the league for a defender so far. So I think he's he's performed admirably. And it's a shame to see him drop out if Taylor is to play the next few games. But at the same time, Taylor's a fine player. And I think he's really stepped up in the past year uh, to become definitely our first choice left back now. I think that's right. And certainly at the back end of last season, Taylor finished the season in spectacular form. And he, he started to give everybody a headache, actually. I think he ended up making the shortlist for player of the year. I think he came third in the end. Um, and that was basically on his second half before. Well, let's be honest, it was everything everybody's player of the year last year was based on the second half of the season. But he certainly finished the the, the season very, very strongly. Um, I agree with you, George. I think Peters has done well since he's come in. But for me, I think Charlie Taylor is the better player. And I would like us to keep him as that number one selection and Peters to give back up when he wants to. I've got to say, though, when Peters went off, you could see how good he was. I think he knew in his head that he, he was his position to lose rather than, um, than you know, to, to be 
it was second to, to Charlie Taylor. I think he realised that he's not going to get his, his place back that quickly. Um, sticking with you, George, James has already started to mention the second yellow card, which obviously happened quite early on in the second half and, and in some respects changed the feel of the game. Um, jo, uh, James has already said that you, you look at it again and it looks like it's kind of harsh, but it was a bit of a reckless challenge. Um, what was your view on the second yellow card? And again, do you share James's view that it really was inevitable that he was going to have to go off at that point? I, I don't think there's any arguments for the second yellow card uh, for me. I know Silva was complaining about it after the game, but given his position, I'd complain about anything, to be honest. I, I don't think it's a... Um, well, I do think it's a yellow, second yellow card. He leads with his elbow, jumps up. He's, he's definitely late in the challenge, as he was for the first one. And once you lead with your elbow like that, and the way he's hit McNeil with it, OK, it's not intentional. I don't think it's uh, intentional by Coleman at all. I know he showed concern after both incidents. But at the end of the day, you do both them challenges. You're late on them both. You're going to get two yellows, and that's the way it was. It definitely changed the game. Uh, it was funny to see on the uh, watching on the TV. Obviously, it just showed Coleman was in in the tunnel, uh, just watching. And you saw as the game grew on, his face got more and more miserable. And he deserved to be there for me. It was a definite second yellow card, and um, yeah, he deserves to miss a game for it. James, it was quite an interesting um, period just after he did go off. Though I, I think we are always mindful of Burnley's record against or perhaps perceived record against 10 men and we always have this belief perhaps misguided but that we don't particularly play well against 10 men um and that feeling was not made any better by the ridiculous possession and the just the way they changed the game when they went down to, to 10 men they seemed to come into their own and really open up the game and and start going for it which surprised me somewhat I think it's been, you know, quite a regular thing under under Dash, and I don't know exactly what the reason is for it, but we just never seem um, to capitalise on teams going down to ten men the way that you'd like us to. And I think everyone almost had that feeling as soon as he gets sent off, like, oh yeah, they're down to ten men, and you're, oh, but now we've actually got to put ten men away, and that seems to be something that we tend to struggle with. I thought Everton settled in quite well with ten men, and until the goal, you probably don't really see the effect of it. Um, but then obviously he gets to the goal and Hendricks completely unmarked. And I think that showed that on that occasion, we managed to get take the advantage of having one more player on the pitch uh, by, you know, ending up with a free man in the box. So I wouldn't say it, it was textbook play against 10 men because there were still times later on where, as George said earlier, I think you never felt like they were going to score, but they were definitely getting far too much possession and far too much you know, time to build pressure. Um, but because of the fact that they don't really have anyone to take advantage of it, you, you felt still reasonably safe. Uh, but if we've been playing against a team who maybe had a more of a danger man up front, if you were allowing teams to build pressure that way, then maybe it'd be more difficult to, to see the game off. Um, but it, it's always, I, I find it horrible when a team goes down to 10 men because you know you're meant to put them away, but it, it's not that easy because obviously they tend to uh, focus on the, the little things more, drill down more, um, you know, be more cautious about how, um, that you know, what freedom they're playing with. They pick the passes a bit better. And they see it seemed to really work for them. They seemed to settle in with 10 men and, and you know, play some reasonable football without ever looking threatening. Yeah, George? Yeah, I know you two were both saying before about how you felt during the first half, especially. It looked as though Everton were playing with a bit of pressure, uh, obviously due to their league position, all the rumours about Silva being sacked. So I think when they went down to 10 men, it's almost like, right, there we go. We've got nothing to lose now. And it definitely showed in how they played. They opened up a bit more. The pressure was off because if they lose there with 10 men, you know, it's it's sort of acceptable in a way, obviously. Uh, so I think you could definitely tell the pressure was off them and that allowed them to open up and come at us a bit more. But I thought we dealt with it really well anyway. Yeah, we did. And I, I never thought we panicked when we went down to 10 men, whereas sometimes, as James rightly says, we haven't always handled playing against 10 men or understood how to break down the teams and to break down the resistance. Um I thought even when they upped their game a little bit and put us under a bit of pressure for a 10-minute spell, we just soaked it up and never really panicked at all and never really looked like we were going to lose a foothold of the game. And then it was very nice to see that we 
ramped the pressure up a little bit and we just turned um on them and that was that was really reassuring to see that we do actually have that in our skill set um james the man of the hour young jeff hendrick with long hair and playing much better when he's got long hair i was um well obviously he scored again which is great he he looks like he's playing with a smile on his face at the moment it's quite an interesting quote from dyke after the game when he said that obviously he was pleased for him but he said he's a better player than he thinks he is which suggests to me that there is a confidence crisis with mr jeff with the beautiful long hair um i mean taking aside the training ground beautiful set piece that we seem to be incredibly talented at at the moment I thought it was another really strong performance from Jeff in a position that just suits him yeah I thought he was uh, really good he's been really good in general this season and it was really interesting what Dash said um, because I think it was uh, he said unlike most players I think he's better than he thinks he is Um, and he was also talking about uh, you know feeling he can chip in more with goals as well uh, which obviously is something in recent weeks he's now shown. Uh, he scored two great goals. And I, I don't know if you've ever seen Jeff Hendricks score a bad goal, to be honest. Uh, they always seem to be decent goals and, and, you know, well taken. But he does seem to be playing with a, that little bit more of a confidence at the moment. Um, I think the thing with uh, Hendrick is quite often in the past, he's, he's maybe, I won't say gone missing, but his impact can be easy to not notice. Um, I don't think I've ever really seen him have a, really bad game but he has a lot of games where you just don't really he doesn't really stand out the same um which I think is is what means he's he can be a bit more marked to fans but I've always liked him because you know when you do notice him he's always putting 100% in um you know he can chip in with goals which I think for a team like us is important that you're not just relying on your strikers you do need people to chip in from elsewhere on the pitch and um you know with Westwood and Cork, you don't necessarily have that because I think they're both more um, tempted to sit back a little bit and, and mainly play the passing game rather than being looking for opportunities to, to score themselves. Whereas Jeff's got that little bit more of a, an attacking mindset to him where he will come into the box and he'll be around the edge of the box and he'll be looking to try and get space. And, you know, the chances he gets aren't always the ones that are super obvious, like when I actually, you know, saw the corner going at first on on Saturday, I thought it was going to be a little bit deep because I I hadn't quite noticed that Jeff was just there completely marked. And obviously, when he then gets there, he's he's from a reasonably tight angle, but you, you feel confident he's going to put it away. Um, and he did; he really rifled it in as well. So um, it's good to see him doing well, and it's good as well because we've obviously Defoe going, we're a little bit lighter in midfield and. Really, we need everyone to be pushing each other um, to ensure that you know there's that competition for places, but also we're constantly getting the best out of the team. Um, and it, I think it's going to give Dash a little bit of a headache when Cork's fit again. Uh, you know, what does he do? Um, because I know some people haven't been happy with all Cork's performances, but I've always said I think Cork does a lot of the things that people don't really notice. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what Dash decides to do, whether he brings Cork back in or does he stick with Hendrick in the middle? Um, does he put Hendrick back on the on the right if you know uh, Goodmanson's not fully fit again? So it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next couple of games with with our midfield and you know how it sort of shakes out. Yeah, definitely. That's certainly one area that we're going to be keeping a close eye on. We said this at the beginning of the season, actually, when we suddenly found ourselves with two really um, clear competition spots in each position that we would be going to some difficult decisions this season and this may end up being the very first one that it has to um, deal with because it's easy when the players are injured like Taylor for Peters exactly you know as an example but when you've got all of those players fit um, it's it's a challenge for Dutch and it's going to be one that I'm, I'm sure he's not going to relish but actually I think he'd rather be in this position than not have the cover at all. Um, George just before we finish up wrapping up the Everton game um, you were particularly impressed with Jay when he came on yeah definitely I thought he was completely different to uh, his first appearances at least this season I thought he looked so lively full of running when he came on Uh, he was always wanting the ball to come to him he was involved in the game a lot for me Uh, he had one good chance where he slipped away from the defender when he was on the uh, counter but he he was just reaching for it a bit so he hit it straight at the keeper but I thought he was uh, a lot better than earlier in the season. I remember uh, particularly the Arsenal game uh, when he came on. I thought we really 
missed, uh, I think it was Chris Wood who came off, yeah. And we really missed Woods running in behind and I thought, oh, Jay doesn't really have that in his locker. But on Saturday, he was brilliant. He was running in behind, uh, holding the ball up, playing it off to Barnes, or, was it, or Barnes, whoever was on the pitch with him, playing really well. And I saw a lot of praise on Twitter as well for him after the game. So it makes me think that it wasn't just me who thought this. So I think it's really good to see him playing so well. And there is a bit of uh, competition up front. And obviously, with you saying Hendrick and Cork, I'd like to say, see Hendrick get a few games in the side now. So he's never really had that run of uh, games in the central midfield role for us starting. So I'd like to see it and it might just give Cork a kick up the backside a bit. Feisty. I'm glad you're not our manager, George. You'd be having a revolt in the dressing room. Um, well, let's finish that up then. Um, James, man of the match. I thought this was a really tough one, to be honest, because there was quite a few decent performances out there. But uh, personally, just for, mm. you know, partly for the way he's, he's maybe turning some people's opinions around of him and obviously scoring the winning goal, it's got to be Jeff Hendrick. Excellent. He is a tough one this week. George, your man of the match? Again, yeah, very tough decision because there was a good uh, few players. You know, Hendrick played well. Uh, Tarks played well again. But I think the man of the match for me was definitely Ben Mee. All game, I noticed him playing so well. Uh, and I think, as Dash said, it'll be one of the best players not to have played for England. I saw a, a thing on Twitter earlier today where it said, uh, who's the best player ever to play for England? And I was just reading through the comments, and obviously you had Steve Bruce, but apart from that, there was no other players, players that I thought are better than Ben Mee, so I think he'll definitely go down as the one of the top players never to play for England, unfortunately. unfortunately. But he was brilliant at the weekend, and it's a shame Southgate wasn't there to see it. Yep, and that's definitely a, a second vote for me. My my match was definitely Ben Mee as well. Um, I just, well, we've talked about this at length, haven't we? I just, I can't understand how Ben Mee's not in the England squad. But never mind, let's save that again for another day for the next time that the England squad is announced. Um, so that, yeah, that's that ends the analysis of the Everton game. It soars temporarily at least, moving to fourth in the table. Very much feels like it did a couple of years ago in the season that we qualified for Europe, the same position. I think we went into fourth didn't we around near the Christmas time and it just as a feel-good factor we're going into the second international break on 12 points um we now sit in seventh place and it just feels like everything's clicking this season it doesn't feel like we're going to be in a relegation battle and it doesn't feel like we are going to do anything other than improve and, and to push on which is what we all wanted them to do so life is certainly looking rosy And the second half of this week's show, we're going to carry on the theme of under pressure managers. Clearly, at the beginning of the weekend, we knew that we were going to have some say in whether Everton played stick or twist with their manager, um, similar to as it was a couple of seasons ago with, with Koeman. Um, but Silver isn't the only manager in the Premier League at the moment who is under immense pressure and is in danger of being fired. So we're going to have a look as our talking point this week at the managers under pressure. Um, George, let's start with you. I think the, there's probably four main managers now in the Premier League who are very much dreading that call to the boardroom. Um, do you think this is a fair list? We've got Solskjaer at United, Pochettino at Spurs, Silver at Everton and Bruce at Newcastle. Would you add any to that list? Would you take any away? Yeah, I, I'd probably take away Bruce, actually, because uh, I know it's a surprising one, but I was watching the the build up to the Newcastle United uh, Man United obviously game at the weekend, and there was an interview with Bruce, and it was the first time I've ever actually listened to him talk really, and actually given him the time of day to actually listen to him, and uh, I thought it made a lot of sense. And he was talking about how he's, I think it was his four hundredth Premier League game at the weekend, and it just made me sit back and think like, you don't get to that many Premier League games without being a good manager, and I think I've probably been taken under the spell of. The sort of, oh, he's, he's old, he's English, therefore he mustn't be very good. And it made me think about how actually he's, he's probably a very good manager uh, to have 400 games in the Premier League. He's obviously the short at the weekend. Uh, he's not a fool, he's a good manager. They managed to, they were compact, organised, and they obviously had a brilliant win against obviously what is a fragile, fragile Man United team at the moment. So I think Bruce deserves time at Newcastle to implement his style. He was obviously, he was talking before the game about how. He wants to play four at the back, two up front, but he can't because the players there just aren't good enough for it. So he's having to stick with the five at the back. So I think definitely Steve Bruce deserves a lot of time. And I think I'm guilty of writing him off in the past just because he's 
old English and obviously not fashionable as a manager. Um, but the other manager obviously was playing against Solskjaer. I think he's under real pressure. I've never, when he got the job, I thought, I, was, I wasn't one who thought, oh, automatically he's won them nine games on the bounce, we should give him the job. I thought they should have waited till the end of the season. And perhaps if they had done, they might have made a different appointment. Um, he's to go from mould, that's how you pronounce it, to Cardiff and then to Manchester United. It's just not the traditional path. Like, yeah, he's been a brilliant player for them. But I think that was a, a big promotion, let's say, to get the Manchester United job. And I don't know whether he's up to it. They're, they're, a, they're a mess as a club, regardless of the manager, to be honest. And then, um, yeah, Silver at Everton. Again, I've never really liked him since he was at Watford. I just thought he's arrogant. He's not even that good a manager. And the way he left Watford to go to Everton, it just rubbed me up the wrong, the wrong way. So I'm actually delighted to see him failing at Everton now. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if he gets sacked soon. Uh, I know they were in the same position. It, was, it might have been a couple of years ago when they brought in Allardyce. And I think they're right for a change again. So I think he's another manager who's under big pressure at the moment. Uh, who was the other one you mentioned? Well, I'm just going to put you on pause there for a second. I was like, oh my God, George is gone. <laughs> like, George, why did Valor do it? Let's take a deep breath and let's look at these. Exactly. I know. Let's look at these one by one. Um, let's, yes, you're absolutely right. I think out of all of that list, Solskjaer is definitely the one, the most precious. So let's pause that one there um, and we'll come back to Solskjaer. Um, James, out of all those points that did, George said that I think the one about removing um, Bruce from the list is probably the most valid. I was really impressed with the um, his pre-match interview at the weekend before the United game. He was asked whether he was under pressure, whether he expected to be in his job for much longer. And I loved his response. He kind of said, hang on a minute, like we're seven games in, like, I know that you don't get much time as a Premier League manager, but we've played seven games and there's only four, sorry, four of those we've played a top six side. So it kind of put it, the press back in their box. So I'm going to agree with George and say we take Bruce off the list. But one thing that I found quite interesting, um, there's a lot of talk about Flores at Watford losing his job. He's only just been appointed. What I mean, number one, do you agree with him being on the list? And the same question to you, is there anybody else that you would add to that list? That's a difficult one for, for whether it's right or wrong, he's on the list. Um, I think being manager of Watford, you're always going to be on the list. Um, even when you're doing well, you're probably only three or four bad results uh, on the spin away from, from losing your job there. That you know, That's how, what the owners have been like the whole time. They've been there, they've been quick to sack. Um and you know the run they're on. I mean, something has to change, doesn't it? It'd be, it would be harsh to to sack a manager even we just brought in. He's, you know, he's not had any chance to change the side or anything like that. But there's some quality in that team, and they're obviously not showing it at the moment. So, you know, rightly or wrongly, whether it be fair to sack a manager after so few games, I think he's going to be on the list of people who could potentially go. Um, I have to agree, though, that Solskjaer is the you know the clear front runner. Um, I think everyone just got caught up in in that initial uh, wave when he he, he took over uh, last season. But a lot of that for me was about the fact that you know clearly the the dressing room um, wasn't playing for Mourinho anymore. I think anyone could have come in. I think you or me could have come in, and they would have won the next game. I just think you know that's that's the players were suddenly playing again. Um, but I mean, Manchester United's problems run way deeper than the manager. Um, I mean, ultimately, I think it goes back to when they sat David Moyes and they sh- shouldn't have removed Moyes for me. Um, I, I really, you know, you look at it and you look at the side that, that Ferguson left them with. Um, they weren't Premier League winning quality. They shouldn't have won the Premier League that, that last year. Um, and they just didn't give Moyes time to, to overhaul the side. And now, as a result, I think that they're paying the price in the long run that it's a club that's mainly driven by its brand rather than uh, than what you need on the pitch. Um, I mean, if you contrast them to Liverpool, who are you know another big football brand in the in the world, never mind in in the UK, um, their decisions on who they sign have always been about who's going to get results on the pitch. Um, some of them have been puzzling. I guess like all sides, you know, they, they've made a few poor signers along the way, but you've never seen them sign brands like Pogba or um, 
you know, the likes of that. And some of the young players coming through at Man United as well, they're more about the brand rather than about what they're doing on the pitch. Um, you know, it's interesting. I think if you sort of compare someone like Rashford with like McNeil and the way they go about how they play and the, you know, the, the press about them so far, you, you see that the Man United players, I don't think, are grounded in reality. They're not just playing football and concentrating on the, the number one thing. And ultimately, that's going to be Solskjaer's downfall. But I think it, it's a position he shouldn't be putting. You know, you look at what he did when he was at Cardiff. And I think to call him poor would be probably generous. Um, he just never had the, the criteria to take over the job. And it, it is one of those ones, I think, where they've just looked at the emotional attachment. You know, oh, super sub Solskjaer as he was. Um you know, you got people saying, "Oh, he's at the wheel," uh, and it just all got a bit carried away, didn't it? And and we're not seeing that continue now. Yeah, definitely. I feel like the Premier League is on the wrong timeline this season, and we'll come on to talk about him probably last. Actually, um, so I think we've all got views on him. But I, I, what should have happened last season is that Woodward should not have got carried away with the feel good factor, and they were such a depressed side under Mourinho by the end. And you know, like like James, you rightly say, this ex player came in, a legend at the club, gave everybody a lift, and got some results going again. And he just had a a rush of blood to the head, gave it into the end of the season, and then just jumped way ahead of himself and decided to give it to him permanently and I mean, it might just be perception but I never seem to feel that caretaker managers do very well once they have got the job permanently um, and by the end of the season it was looking pretty obvious that Solskjaer wasn't the right man for the job and if Woodward had just by his time and waited till the end of the season what should have happened is Pochettino should have gone to United in the summer Spurs should have got a new manager in and then this entire season would have been completely different Um but, James, looking at the United links for who they're going to get, these are the favourites to replace Solskjaer. They're not even saying if, when he gets sacked. Um, the main list is Pochettino. Obviously, he's going to be favourite because that rumour just doesn't seem to want to go away. Then Eddie Howe, hilariously. Um, Brendan Rodgers, Massimiliano Allegri, and I wanted to say that because I've been practising that all day, um, Gareth Southgate and Arsene Wenger. Now. Out of those, James, who would you say is most likely to actually get United back to winning ways on the pitch? That's a really difficult question because it. I'd have to say uh, probably Arsene Wenger, though I can't see him actually becoming, uh, you know, Manchester United manager. But he's the type of person who'd only come in if he was going to get a significantly more control over, you know, the whole operation. Um, than a lot of managers would settle for, and I think that's the problem at the moment, at United. Uh, like I said, the, a lot of the signings are done on brand potential. And, um, you know, Man United last year, did they not break the record for profit by football club or something like that or or revenue? Um, but, you know, they were posting bigger figures than ever and they, they weren't having any success on the pitch, which, you know, says a lot about the situation that actually they don't need to be successful to be a successful business, um, which, you know, is the way football tends to be going these days. Um, because yeah, it, it's a cultural problem at Manchester United. It, it's everything. The the club, I think, is uh, you know rotten to the core. It's not really about winning football games anymore. Um, so it's difficult to see how any of those those guys would really be able to turn it around without having you know more control over other aspects of the club. Like Dash has at Burnley, where obviously he has a massive input into everything they do, not just uh, what they're doing on the pitch, but you know, when they improve the training facilities and, you know, whenever they do work on the pitch or the ground, Dash is involved. Um, that's obviously not the case at Man United. The, the manager's just left to mainly pit the team every week. I don't think they even, from the looks of it, have that much input on who they sign, um, which is a shame. But for me, I think you could still see uh, Potocino going there because obviously it, it's hard to say what's gone wrong at Tottenham, but I think at a big part of it is that he had his head turned um, and, and the players have, I think, lost faith in the fact that he's there for them. Um, so maybe the best thing for, for both teams would be that, you know, Man United take Pochettino off Tottenham's hands and Tottenham can go out and get a new manager and the, the players can start playing for the manager again. I definitely agree with you, Natalie, that it feels like the Premier League's on a, an alternative timeline this season so far. I think there's definitely um, potential for Burnley to have another special season. You see teams like Tottenham absolutely crumbling apart at the seams. 
uh, United, the exact same. There's a lot of potential for some new teams to move into the top seven, top six area. And I think we could maybe fill in the top seven area if we carry on this form. And uh, I saw a funny tweet at the weekend. And it just, uh, I don't know if you've seen the Eddie Hearn memes that have been going around. Um, and it just said, Burnley overtaking United Spurs, Chelsea and Arsenal to go fifth. And this is it. Irrelevant, boring, old, yesterday's news. Out of the way, excuse me, we're coming in. And that's definitely how it feels. We're coming in. Top six Burnley, here we come. <laughs> I love it. I love that. But is Eddie Hearn making a surprise appearance on the No and Never podcast, I tell you. Times be changing. Um, I think, James, looking at the um, list of players, sorry, managers to replace Pochettino, assuming that he is going to go to United. It feels like we're in a bit of a, a circular problem with managers in that it's pretty much the same list going to be linked to Spurs. You've got Howe on there, you've got Allegri, you've got Rodgers. But their favourite with the bookers at the moment is Mourinho. And I'm I'm not sure I'm not sure he's the right person to come in and and mend Spurs, do you? It's an interesting one. Um you know, I, I still think that Mourinho is one of the, the greatest managers of this generation anyway. Um, he's clearly a difficult person to deal with, but, you know, a lot of very successful people are. Um, you know, he clearly has his quirks. I think he had the potential to be, you know, really elevate himself to another level of, of status at United. But unfortunately, you know, like I, I've said already several times, it, the way that United have been getting their players doesn't lend itself to to that kind of they, they put a lot of the players are more about themselves than the team. You know, if you go back and look at his really successful years at Chelsea, there were so many players in there that were I guess kind of workmanlike. Um, you know, they they weren't super flashy, but they were really good quality players, and they they knew how to play as a team. Um, and I think that's what you need when Mourinho is the manager somewhere. Um, but yeah, you look at the list of these, man, and they're just—they're all fishing in the same pond, and there's just a, a lack of sort of willingness to to you know pull a diamond from the rough or try someone new, um, or even just take someone from further down the system. I mean, I think it works out well for us because it means no one's going to come for Daesh. But you do wonder why with some of these teams, why is no one ever looking at Daesh and? Are they pigeonholing him because of what he does at Burnley, maybe? Um, you know, quite possibly. But I think Dyche is clearly a, you know, a great student of the game. And I think Burnley play the way Burnley play because that's what you have to do to get results with you know the, the level of players that we can afford who will come to Burnley. I think if you gave Dyche, you know a bigger budget, he still wouldn't necessarily get those flashy players that a lot of fans would want him to sign. But he'd get a lot of players who obviously have even more quality than the, the, the players at Burnley do. And that's not to say that you know our players aren't, aren't good. They are good. But he could get that extra level of player who's got that workmanlike attitude, but also has you know extra natural talent, really. The, you know, the, the sort of edge that a lot of money buys you. The players like Defoe, but the ones obviously who... Uh, you know, haven't had injury problems or whatever that enables them to be signed by a team like Burnley. Um, so, yeah, th- th- there's too much fishing in the same pond. And, and you look at some of those names, and you just you can't necessarily see it. You know, would would Benitez come back to the UK now? He's he's up there on the list, quite near the top. Um, you know, after the the way he's been treated when he left Newcastle. Um, you know, which I think. The fact that he had to then go and write in his own um, column on the, the Athletic about how a lot of the stuff that's been written about him uh, in the Newcastle program by you know people involved in the club just was you know plainly untrue. You're not going to get someone like him back, I don't think. And Brendan Rodgers is up there, and he'd be mad, I think, to leave Leicester. He's eventually, I think, found you know obviously at Liverpool the expectation was massive. Um, he then went to Celtic where. You know, you and me could probably win the league with Celtic, Bromers. There's that little competition up there. Um, and now he's gone to Leicester where there's a job to be done, but at the same time, there's not a huge amount of pressure because no one expects Leicester to win the league again. Um, so why would he then go and go to Tottenham where you look at Tottenham's recent 
season uh, finishes in the league. And really, the next step for them is to properly challenge for the title and really take it down to the line. Well, if you look at them, for me, if you look at the managers at the top of the table right now, they are the tried and tested managers. Obviously, you've got Pep, uh, obviously done amazing things at Barcelona and at Bayern. And you have Klopp, who'd done amazing things in Germany. So it's, I know it's all well and good as all saying, oh, why doesn't a big team give Daesh or Eddie Howe or whoever a go? But then if you look at the top of the table, it's the managers who have been at the top of the game for years that are actually doing well. It's just that maybe your likes of um, your United when you've appointed Mourinho, they've just appointed the wrong top boss. Because I think if United had appointed Pep a few years back, I think they might be in the same situation City are now because he's that good a manager. Uh, Mourinho at United just isn't fit. Um, Mourinho to Spurs, I just can't... I think he'd probably do well there, but I just can't see it because I just don't think Potts should leave Spurs at all. I mean, they're in the Champions League final uh, a few months back and now there's all of a sudden this crisis of uh, leadership. I think it's a bit ridiculous. Obviously, they're in a they're in a really tricky situation now, but I think if they just ride through it, um, obviously, there's a lot of deadwood to get out at Spurs, and I think it, a lot of it depends on whether Pochettino himself actually wants to stick with it. Because I think if he's not committed, then okay, have a word, let him go. But I think if he is committed, then over the next couple of seasons, he should get rid of a lot of the deadwood which they've kept in the squad while they've been building the new stadium, and uh, keep your likes of Harry Kane and Deli Ali and build a team that can actually mount a challenge for the title because whatever way you're looking at it at the moment, that Spurs squad is uh, it's it's definitely coming to the end of its cycle as a team uh, to t- challenge for the top three. But I'd be worried if Dash went to a big club myself because I've obviously he's done wonders at us, but I, I wonder whether he'd be able to do the same at a big club where obviously you won't be playing 4-4-2 every week, whether he has the tactical flexibility to be successful, I mean, when we've tried to go four-five-one, for example, or three at the back, it's not been too successful. So, I'd I'd be worried in one aspect whether he'd fail, and then in the other aspects, I'd be gutted if he left anyway. Yeah, I think we all would be. Uh, final point on this, then, before we go, is just to go back to the the Everton job. Um, assuming that we're all comfortable that Silver is on his way out soon, um, the favourites to take over at Everton are Moyes. Um, actually, Wilder is is the favourite to take over at uh, two to one odds. I think that was um, Moyes then second favourite. Arteta, no, sorry, Wilder and Arteta were joint favourites, and then Moyes and Benitez were both three to one to take over. Interestingly, George Deitch is only thirty three to one um, to take over at Everton. Um, I suspect that him then messing him around a couple of years ago has probably closed that door. Um, again, George, do you? Would you be worried, I guess, if, if Everton sacked Silver that we would lose Dyche? No, not at all. Just because historically, I don't think anyone's ever coming for Dyche. It's always just us lot getting worried about it. I think Sunderland came close a few years back if you if you listen to rumours. But there's never really been a big push for a big team to get Dyche. Uh, so I wouldn't be worried about that. But you did mention uh, Chris Wilder at Sheffield United as a favourite. I think that would be a brilliant appointment for them. Uh, young, uh, up-and-coming manager on the scene. He's done wonders at Sheffield United. And um, this season so far, Sheffield United to me, have surprised me massively. Uh, they're unbeaten in the four away games, in all the away games in the Prem this year. They've only conceded... Uh, the only team to concede less are Liverpool, which puts them up there. And I think they're, um, they're really surprising me so far, and I think they'll stay up. So... Chris Wilder's definitely a great shout for the job for me. Yeah, well, let's hope he gets it and then we don't have to worry about uh, Dutch going. Um, that is all we have time for this week. We have looked at Burnley's fantastic win at home against Everton to catapult them to fourth in the table. And we've had a quick look at the merry-go-round that is the Premier League sack race. My thanks as ever go to two wonderful panellists, to George, uh, for joining us all the way from his university days this day. I think while you were on air, George, your dad sent us a message tell us to give you a hard time so hopefully we did that I think he's missing you so make sure in your university time you make time to go home to your mum and dad yeah I'll try I'll try (laughs) I will Um, and of course welcome back to James James we missed you it's been very good to have you back it's felt like a big warm hugging and mug welcome back to the podcast it's good to be back 
Excellent. Hopefully we'll hear from you again before the end of the season. Um, thanks as ever to producer Matt um, for editing this all together and uh, making it all warm and fuzzy and, and ready for you listeners. And also thanks to band Joyce for our podcast music. Final thanks go to you, the listener, for downloading and listening to this podcast. Your support is very much appreciated and we would not be here without you. We will be back in two weeks' time looking at what will hopefully be another win away from home at Leicester. Um, and Dave and I will be back a week on Friday to preview that show on the special edition of the preview show. I've been Natalie Bromley. This has been the Known and Ever podcast. Until next time. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure. 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.